From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. Another big episode of the pod today. We're doing it live in front of a sold-out packed room. We'll be joined by our very special guest, the TV critic for The New Yorker, winner of the 2016 Pulitzer Prize in Criticism, Emily Nussbaum. Emily has been with the magazine since 2011. Before that, she wrote for The New York Times and New York Magazine. We've had a lot of great showrunners and TV creators on this pod, but Emily maybe our first TV critic. She's about the smartest, most incisive writer on the changing TV landscape working today. One of the great things about Emily's criticism is that it's all-inclusive. She'll write about ambitious cable dramas like Game of Thrones, as well as much smaller, character-centered comedies like Jane the Virgin. She's unapologetic about her love for TV, while continuing to point out important social critiques embedded in shows that we might otherwise miss. Look no further than her great profile of Ryan Murphy in The New Yorker last year for proof. Or her piece about the survivor story underlying unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. On Game of Thrones, Mad Men, and Downton Abbey, Emily wrote about their insight into what it means to be excluded from power, to be a woman, or a bastard, or a half-man. Like any great criticism, she makes us see these shows from a different perspective and adds a richness to the experience. And she's always grappling with what it means to take TV seriously. She's the furthest thing from a snob. For the clip to play on our show today, Emily didn't choose a scene from The Wire or Handmaid's Tale. She picked a scene from 30 Rock. It's one that's always been a favorite of mine. It makes me laugh so hard. I can't wait to hear Emily explain what she sees in it so I can appreciate it even more. That's what Emily does. Because there's so much amazing TV writing today, some of my favorites, like Patriot on Amazon or Lovesick on Netflix you've likely never even heard of, which is astonishing, we need critics like Emily more than ever. A huge thanks to Derek Webster and the Office of Career Strategy for hosting this event, and to the Common Good and Creative Center Initiative, which is sponsoring. And as always, a giant thanks to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy, who's in the field recording the event, in addition to everything else he does for the show. And all right, we're going to take you now to the Center for Collaborative Arts and Media on the corner of York and Chapel Streets here in New Haven for our in-depth convo with the great Emily Nussbaum. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. Um, so Emily was kind enough to just join us uh, at our class to talk a little bit to the students. Um, you know, in class we talk a lot about whether TV writers still think in episodes or whether they now think in seasons. A lot of creators and showrunners talk about their shows as 10-hour movies. As a reviewer, do you miss, do you miss no, the episode? Note no for the podcast that I'm making a tortured expression, <laughs> the idea of people talking about 10-hour movies. Yeah. yeah, so do you feel like, how has it changed your job, or how does it change the way you look at television? Well, there are two problems. One of them is that every time a showrunner says that they're trying to make 10-hour movies, every television critic goes crazy because it's so frustrating as a concept right. um, for a couple of different reasons. One of them is that... Um, 
we're all trying to get away from constant comparisons to movies and to actually celebrate television as television and talk about television's distinctive qualities. And so the notion that people making television, as as is true for some people who make t TV, really aspire to make movies and in order to grant more status to the stuff they're making have to describe it as a movie. That's a TV critic's way of seeing right. that phrase as, as, a, as a, an expression of status anxiety about the medium. That's one thing. Um, the other thing is that even if they're making a 10-hour movie, it arrives in episodes. <laughs> so I, I do think it is a significant structural change in terms of what TV is. And it's something that certainly people who write about TV are wrestling with all the time. Because it's not, to me, just the, the length of the show or how it's chopped up, but the fact that all of the episodes come out at once. I mean, that doesn't make it like a 10-hour movie, but it does make it a little bit like a 10-chapter book. <laughs> and, and that's a different feeling. Um, so yeah, me personally, I wrestle with that for a specific reason that doesn't have so much to do with the episodes as the span of time that they come out in. Because for a long time, I've thought of TV's distinctive quality as the fact that it has this relationship with the audience over time, that episode episodes used to come out every week and then every year, and you'd have a relationship with the show for years, and the people making the show would keep making it behind the scenes responding to how the audience responded, that's not true. So I don't know whether it's a 10-hour movie, but it's definitely something different than a three-season TV show. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you or feel... A or a five-year TV show. Would you feel comfortable reviewing one of these kinds of prestige, drama, 10-hour movie kind of shows, having only watched the first three episodes that they give you? I do that all the time. Right. The <laughs> Sometimes they episodes. only give us a few episodes. Right. It's, it's weird. There's, there's, for critics, there's all of these odd insider agonizing changes that have to do with um, the relationship between PR, the industry, and criticism. And a big breakthrough, and I don't think I was, I was writing TV criticism at the time, but um, at one point HBO put out the whole fourth season of The Wire at once, and it radically affected the way that show was perceived because the critics were able to watch the entire brilliant fourth season of The Wire at once. And I think a lot of people who, who uh, produce TV were like, okay, we broke through right. our inability to get people to write about The Wire, and now everybody's writing about it. And it wasn't just because the fourth season was good. It actually was because right. they did that. And at a certain point, TV critics do get picky. And I, I mean, I have little rules for myself. Like, I, at one point, I made a vow never to um, write about the first six, in the first six uh, episodes of a network sitcom. I won't write about them. Hmm. I once wrote this piece about it where I said, well, you know, they're a little bit like the burnt pancake first pancake thing, because even in a great show, often the first six episodes aren't representative. And then, and I, I think I wrote that it was like reviewing a baby because it couldn't lift its neck. <laughs> like, like, like insufficient neck strength. Um, but you know, that's a particular kind of TV, a network sitcom, and I don't feel that way about um, certain kinds of cable and streaming shows. Right. So it really varies. But I will say that the more episodes that I get, the better it feels. Right. Because, I mean, some of these creators would talk about it, you know, like a, a novelist, you would never review chapter one of a book. Yeah, but right? that's, that's not, God. <laughs> I'm not like, no, I'm like in a fight angry. with an yeah. invisible showrunner. Like, <laughs> like, stop talking about it like that. No, I, I mean, that is true. And there are specific showrunners who notoriously were always talking like that. One of them actually being David Simon from The Wire, because right. he was constantly being driven crazy by people reviewing things episodically. But there is this level at which, to me, 
the television audience, the way that people experience TV is a conversation, and you want to have a conversation as the show is going on. Um, and the history of a certain kind of TV criticism that I don't write anymore, and I hate writing, but is meaningful, is the recap. And the recap is about one episode at a time. Right. And people who watch TV want to read recaps because they want to read about a particular episode. Um, but I've had this I've had this problem, less so now because so many shows are streaming and come out all at once, but um, I remember I, I sort of made this rule for myself at The New Yorker where it was less because of doing due diligence to the art form than just pragmatic sense of when I could write the best review, is I would often review a, a drama three quarters of the way through the season, which is a risky thing to do. But at least you know enough about what's going on that you can weigh in and trigger and be part of a conversation. If you write about it after the finale airs, it's a different kind of review. It's a different kind of essay. And I would do that as well. And I like doing both things. Right. But yeah, I have no problem with reviewing something before it's done. Right. And of course, I mean, you're not just re talking about plot in your reviews. You're talking about voice. You're talking mm -hmm. about characters. You're yeah. talking about emotionality and, and arcs, which you can certainly see the beginnings of at least in the first few episodes. And you know, it, it is, it's different with different kinds of shows. It's different with... Um, High Maintenance is a very different show than 30 Rock. You know, like, like, like you review things in different ways depending. I will say, I once wrote a review, a column about Mad Men that I, I personally feel is a very good column. Um, it, but it was very critical of the show at a point. It was sort of about how great the show was, but how weighty and kind of um, highly symbolic the character of Don Draper was to the point that it was starting to weigh down the whole show with the sense that he represented all of masculinity in America. Right. He had this monstrously complex, traumatic backstory. And so I wrote this piece. It's not a pan of the show. I obviously love the show, but it was critical of this particular kind of like gloomy weightiness that had accrued to his character. And literally the episode after I published it was the one with, I think, the lawnmower running right. somebody over was hilarious. It was something great. You know, it was something that completely reminded me, this show's hysterical. Like, it's actually very funny. Right. Um, and then I looked at my review, and I was like, well, right. <laughs> maybe if I had waited two more episodes. But I remember that episode of Mad Men, and half the critics were saying, this is so incredibly funny. Um, half the critics were saying, this is a symbol for Vietnam. Uh, yeah, is... well, that, but it, I, I, I tell you, Matt, Matt, somewhere Matt, Matt, Matthew Weiner? We were having this whole discussion about how you pronounce his name. Um, somewhere he is smiling broadly right. because it seems like that was the intention of the right. show. Exactly. Great that. Um, I'm curious about your writing habits. Certainly we have a lot of people who are critics and the audience. Um, I think it's incredibly you know, helpful for people to hear. When you're reviewing a show, how many times do you watch it before you'll put pen to paper? Do you watch it with notes? Do you try to just watch it as a random audience member without notes? I do this different ways for different shows. It's changed over time. And a lot of a TV critic's job at this point is triage because there's so much to watch that it, you know, there are shows that I watch multiple times. There are shows that I just love so much that I watch them multiple times for no good reason, wasting time watching things that I like. Um, but a lot of the times I will watch something, well, often I'll watch something once and sometimes I watch it on my big screen and sometimes I watch it on my computer where they send us screaming, uh, screaming, streaming screeners. Um, and uh, I used to watch things on DVDs and then they started sending me thumb drives. I mean, it's just like the, the technology of it changes yeah. and I do watch things on my phone. Thus angering my colleague, Richard Brody, um, <laughs> who, who's uh, and, and other movie critics. It changes the way we, um, yeah. one of my favorite things uh, from the, the New York Times 
TV critic was when he talked about how people who binged Breaking Bad over a short period of time saw the evil residing inside Walter always. People who watched it over a period of four years, you know, there's five years, slowly saw external forces acting on it. And I could actually name the exact shows that I binged because I had the, I actually wrote a piece called um, My Breaking Bad Binge because I didn't catch up on the show until fairly late. So I watched all three episodes in uh, three seasons in one week, wow. which is a really good show to binge, actually. It works. I also binge watched um, at, on. Uh, because my editor insisted I review it, wa The Walking Dead, which did not make a very good binge. <laughs> um, I binge watched uh, Key and Peele, and I binge watched Always Sunny, both of which I wanted to catch up with all the episodes I right. haven't seen, both of which were wonderful experiences. And I also, uh, this was, I don't think I was writing TV criticism at the time, but um, when you have newborn babies, it's a really good time to binge watch TV because your hours are so weird, you're not sleeping, and you take it all in without any critical judgment whatsoever. And I watched the season of Lost while I was um, on maternity leave that was the one that everybody in real life was very critical of and thought that it had flown off the thing. And binge watching it while having no sleep, it seemed like a perfectly good season of TV. So <laughs> I was completely, there was something very nice about being detached from right. the, you know, the rage of a fanhood. Right. So what's the process for how the New Yorker chooses which shows to review? I'm not quite sure how to ask this, but I think a lot about how book critics at the magazine might not be so willing to review commercial fiction, right? A, a dime store novel, something you buy at CVS. It feels a little bit different. Of course, I beg to review the <laughs> right. TV. We were talking in the class about Vander, Vanderpump. Vanderpump rules. I wrote a column right. of Amber. So different kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, well, the, the thing is, when I started this job, and again, I'm going to use the word triage on this whole thing. The, the way I decide what to review is I decide what to review. I mean, very few times have has my, my editor will occasionally suggest something, but he doesn't watch that much television, and he is occasionally there'll be something that he thinks might be interesting. But by and large, I suggest things, and sometimes I suggest three things and tell him why I thought they'd be interesting, and he picks one. But often I just say I want to review something. But the more TV there is, the harder this is to do. And when I started the job, I had a mental rule for myself where I said, what I'm going to try to do, you know, my column comes out every two weeks and then generally, and now I'm writing more features and sometimes I write a longer essay. But by and large, you know, every two weeks I have to have a subject. So I was thinking I'll go, I'll try to alternate from comedy to drama, cable to network, small thing that is a gem that I want to draw attention to, enormous thing that everybody's talking about, and every four or five weeks I'll throw in a mixed to negative review because I really don't think it's great as a critic to only review things that you're like, this is good, this is good, this is right. good. So I was like, but I have sort of rules for what's worth panning, you know, because you don't want to just pick some random mediocre new sitcom that's coming out in the fall and spend a whole column weighing in on it. That was my plan. That sounds good, right? It's like very rigorous and like has some kind of sense of variety. I don't do that anymore. At this point, I really am just, and, and actually it gets frustrating because I do want to write about things that I think are um, in one of several categories, fascinating and worth talking about, regardless of whether they're good or not. Um, wonderful and not enough people are watching them, so I do feel some sort of strong sense of wanting to draw people's attention to things that are off the beaten track and particularly good. Highly original and therefore worth talking about because they change the medium. I mean, I'm most interested theoretically in reviewing things that have something to say not just about the show itself but about television. That's a very grand thing to say though. In reality, 
I, I'm just trying to find something I'd like to write about. But in the case of Vanderpump Rules, I was getting really frustrated because I'm very interested in reality television and I rarely write about it because I don't have time, it's hard to find things. like. Anyway, I, I realized I'd never written about The Real Housewives, and I decided that what I would do is I would pick a show that was like a humble show in The Real Housewives franchise that I could kind of sneak in through the servant's entrance by writing about the show that is about... And anyway, that one I watched by um, downloading three seasons onto my phone, putting in my headphones, and like walking all over Brooklyn watching the show. Because I wanted to watch enough of it that... I not only, I didn't want to watch just a few episodes. I mean, I wanted to get a sense of the larger patterns and the characters and um, this is a really fun show. Yeah. <laughs> I like Vanderpump And you didn't Rolls. get any pushback from Rednick? No, I mean, I got encouragement to do that. Actually, I, I think if anything, um, David and my editor would like me to do more, and I kind of wish that I could do more other kinds of TV. I write a lot about scripted television, which I do happen to be personally deeply interested in, but right. TV is so many more things. And I've occasionally, you know, I wrote a piece about late night talk show stuff. I, you know, I've written about a few talk show things. I once wrote a piece about Fox News, but I don't usually write about the news. Um, you know, there's a million different yeah. kinds of, there's a lot of reality shows. I, I once wrote a piece about cooking shows and it was very, I'm a terrible cook. So it was yeah. very outside my, so it was, it was like, it was like having some sort of an, very uninformed anthropologist. Right. <laughs> you know. I just, over the weekend, I binged um, where it's called Salt. Everyone's uh, talking about the show, and I'm terrific. feeling like this is a classic example. I won't say what I'm reviewing, but I'm reviewing another show that is interesting, and I'm catching up on it. And the whole time I've been catching up on it, I've been seeing people tweet about this Salt Fat show, <laughs> right. and I'm like, why didn't I pick that show? That show sounds really good. But. I wouldn't have known what to say about it. Yes, yeah. you know, maybe you would have found. I'm sure you would have found I'm, something. To say I, about I haven't it, watched but, it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm curious about um, your relationship with the people who are making TV. You know, in your Ryan Murphy profile that we read in class, um, you mentioned that he gave you a copy of his new show, and then he wrote to you later asking where you would rank it on a scale yeah. from 1 to 10. This is the thing you have to understand about Ryan Murphy, is he ranks everything from 1 to 10. And he's obsessed with awards and Oscars, and like he, this is his thing. I am a person who every year in December writes a piece for the website about how I refuse to rank shows one to ten. So we were in a natural like <laughs> right. showdown about this. So um, do you? I mean, do you often hear no. from showrunners? No, never. No. I mean, I basically never hear from showrunners, which right. is good. Um, but I occasionally profile people, so I do know some people, but not, but in a professional way. Like, right. I, I don't. I, I'm trying to think. Has anyone written to me? I once had a conversation with somebody who was upset about something I'd written because they thought it was unfair. And I was like, I'm open to having a conversation about it because I don't, because I, like, it's not that I wanted to to change that person's mind or have them change my right. mind, but I actually did sort of feel like in a human way, I felt like, and it was a, it was a small issue, but like it was, it was illuminating and helpful. Right. Um, but other than that, no. And what about before you write it? How important is it to you to know sort of who the showrunner creator is, to know what their vision is for the show before you review something? Or can you just review it sort of in a bubble, just what's on the screen? I'm torn because I think that there's something valuable about writing about the show as a show, because that's the way most people experience it. But the truth is, I think my reviews are better when I'm more informed. I mean, I think I can offer something to the reader that I can't offer them um, uh, that I can't offer them otherwise. So I, th there's a limit to what I can do. I mean, for instance, I you know I reviewed Game of Thrones and I did not read the Game of Thrones book. And there are some Game of Thrones people who get really mad if you review 
them and don't read the books. But I can't read and see every single thing. But I actually do read a lot of interviews with showrunners, and I mean, I find it, I find it helpful. Like it's helpful to know Mike Schur's thinking about right. his shows and the morality of his shows. I love reading gossip about what's going on behind the set. I mean. I think that's different than saying whether a show is good or not. It's not like if I read about a joyous set, I'm like, therefore, it's a good show, or if I read about something bad happening. But right. yeah, I, I do try to. Well, is it more or less, you, you told me that um, you sort of started your career writing about poetry. Yeah. Right? Was it more or less important, or maybe the same, to know who the poet was and what their intention was, or even just sort of? I can't even remember because I've blocked out that entire period. I was in graduate school, and I wrote. I I was. I had been talking about this. I wrote a few. I, I wrote um, reviews of, of poetry for the New York Times Book Review, and then I decided that I couldn't do it because I felt I I, I wasn't trying to have a career as a critic per se, um, and. It felt cruel to review poetry in the New York Times Book Review because I felt like writing even a mixed review, let alone a negative review, had this impact in this huge way because very few people read poetry. One person writes it, it's highly personal, they make no money. And even though poetry is considered an elevated art form people look up to, it's actually a very small niche thing. And then this is the sticky story I tell, but it's true. When I discovered TV as something I wanted to write about, which is a whole story in itself, but um, I was like, this is the opposite of poetry. <laughs> People look down on it. It's made collaboratively for enormous amounts of money. And when you write a pan, you're praising the medium by saying that you expect that it could do something great. Right. So I've said this before, but like that's, that was where I was coming from, was not wanting to write arts criticism, but wanting to engage in a conversation about television. Right, right. Um, which felt like it could take it. <laughs> right, I think we can take it. We're talking. Yeah. Um, I have a few more questions for you, um, and then I'm gonna open it up to the audience. But first, I just wanted to play a clip. Um, so I asked you sort of what scene from a TV show that you would maybe wanna talk about from a craft perspective. And um, very happily, you chose a scene from 30 Rock. Um, so we're gonna watch that scene, which is certainly one of my favorites, and then talk about it for a second. Um, hey, uh, Tracy, this is uh, Suzanne Hawker, the NBC therapist. Who's crazy, Amir and Curry? Hello, Tracy. Jack informed me of a talk you had earlier, and if you don't mind, I'd like to hop right in and start with some role play. Like my wife and I do? Cool. You be the maid. I want you to scream. Donahue, you play the matador. Uh, no, Tracy. What I want you to do is talk to that empty chair as if your father were sitting there. Now, this is stupid. Come on, Tracy, we're here to help you. Uh, Tracy, maybe it will help if Jack sits in the chair and pretends to be your father. I want to talk to you, son. You sound nothing like my dad. Well, where's he from? All I know is he's from funky North Philly. He worked in a Campbell soup factory, and he had a droopy lip due to an unattended root canal. I think I can do this. Okay, go. I'm mad at you, Dad. Hey, dummy, I'm mad at you, too. Why you got to act out that way? Uh, that's not exactly what I had. Because you left me, Dad. I was young and confused, and your moms didn't want me around no more. Now, pass me them damn collard greens. Is this true, Mom? He gambled away my welfare check. Woman, I got a mind to smack you upside the head. Uh, this is not helpful. Be me now. I only act out because I want your love. That on my I think we're just doing good times now. Now, do the white dude that my mom's left my dad for. Uh, now, see here, Tracy. It's impolite to slurp one soup. Oh, no need to resort to ugly stereotypes. You're always gonna be my son. 
Tracy, just because I stopped loving your dad doesn't mean we stop loving you. Stop putting words in my mouth, woman. Oye, papi, callate. People are sleeping. Mind your own damn business, Mrs. Rodriguez. All right, this is ridiculous. Lady, just because I'm an ignorant black man and you paid me a nickel to bust up your shift room doesn't give you the right to call me ridiculous just because I'm proud of my son. <laughs> they got me. Donkey shot me. Ugh. No, Dad! Don't die! I love you, Dad! I don't want a dog fight no more! Tracy, that's it! That's it! Thank you for showing me there really is love in my family after all. And I need to stay the hell away from them. Donaghy, you're the only family I need, Jackie D. You got that right, Trey. You know, it's too bad you didn't know Howard Cosell when you were growing up, because I had that one in my pocket the whole time. I love that scene. Gosh. Uh, why do you like that scene? Well, first of all, I, I like this episode. It's one of my favorite episodes of TV. I'm a big 30 Rock fan. Um, and I like comedy a lot, and I like sitcoms a lot. And I like a lot of meta comedy. And the episode that this is in is called Rosemary's Baby. And I don't know if you've watched it, but it's the one where um, Carrie Fisher plays her hero, who is, um, uh, who's this female television comedy writer from the 1970s who's become incredibly... Um, uh, like just run down and poor and she's living in a neighborhood I'm trying to remember what it's called it's like a little Bosnia or something like where she just like has made no money and had to leave TV because she was could not get her stuff made um, and uh, and Liz engages in this ongoing meta debate about what kind of comedy is political comedy and edgy comedy and meaningful comedy on TV because she keeps encouraging her basically to quit, quit by saying you're a sellout, you're working for NBC, and you're making this kind of schlocky comedy show. And so she is quitting. So in the middle of this episode where there's this ongoing debate that they're having, including a debate about racial humor and what kind of humor is offensive and what kind of humor is not offensive. And it's, there's like, it's sort of about laughing and all of these old TV shows. Um, they have this scene, which is literally a demonstration in scene form of the kind of comedy that uh, 30 Rock does, and it engages in all of these racial imitations that he's doing, but it frames them <laughs> in this really crazy way where they're all actually about TV racial imitations, so that he's doing, you know, an imitation of Good Times and <laughs> JJ on Good Times and stuff like that. And also, it's just a tour de force of performance. Yes. But every time I look at the episode, every time I look at that scene, I notice new things. And this time, I'd actually forgotten that when he starts to the, do the imitation of Tracy's family, he doesn't do a, a racial imitation. He actually just tries to do it as himself. Right. And then Tracy's like, that's not like my dad. You should do my dad. Um, and the other thing is, I once had this long conversation with somebody about the role of the sort of very earnest white um, a therapist woman wearing her beige. <laughs> She's like very perfectly styled to be the sort of like, <laughs> like the way in which this completely hilarious tour de force thing that just keeps expanding and including new characters and then right. a death and everything keeps being broken up by other comments from the other characters where she's like that's just jj she's like reminding the audience that's jj from dynamite she's like this is not what you're supposed to be doing and then tracy says when he does the white imitation he says now you're just engaging in hurtful racial stereotypes anyway it's just it's just my jam like i like a lot of different kinds of comedy on tv and a lot of comedy on TV isn't very funny lately because most comedy shows are sad and upsetting and about sex and relationships and they're on cable and they're dramedies right. um, until somebody comes up with a better name. And I like a lot of those shows. 
but there's something about a certain kind of like hard joke writing that they did on this show that I think is very beautiful and kind of mathematical. And this is a well-filmed scene, but it's a network sitcom. It's not doing anything particularly filmic. But I still think it has this unbelievable potency because it's just the close-ups of these performances right. that are just, especially his performance. Yeah, it's a great He's just like Alex Baldwin, Alex Baldwin can do a lot of bad things mm -hmm. and make a lot of annoying comments and all of this kind of stuff, and I'll still kind of be like, that was still a good scene. Right, um, right. Like, so, like, so stop across, making terrible comments, Alec. I would like I to know, appreciate your scene. Are you able to divorce yourself, though, and just see Jack Donaghy rather than Alec Baldwin? It's just a general issue in life right now. But, like, anyway. Right. But, but you know, we talked about how, um, you know, in class we study TV writers' scripts because that's just sort of the pure distillation of the writer's vision, whereas you look at the produced show and millions of other decisions have been made from everyone from the, the line producer to the director and so on. Yeah. But this is a great example of, you know, well into the stride of 30 Rock, they're writing for the talents of their cast. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, you would not write this Absolutely. scene in any other sitcom if you don't have Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Um, and Tracy is great. And Tracy's great. Yeah. Great in the scene. Like it really doesn't work without his, um, like his completely earnest shifts from one thing to another, where right. he's like, "This is not working," and then right. Yeah. And it's right. It's also there's a real sweetness to it. Yeah. That that's you, the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. That this show, as you said, is very much about a mentor-protege relationship, and that's the perfect. You know, that's exactly what we're seeing here with Tracy and Jack. Although it's interesting because at the end, he's you know, the, part of the theme of the scene is I don't need my family. This is my family, my work family. And on many shows, that's a very warm thing. Like on Parks and Recreation, that's a very warm thing. One thing I always appreciated about Thirty Rock is it's not really a warm show in that way. I mean, the people do care for one another, but they're. They're incredibly damaged characters who also right. sort of waver between being people and being archetypes, and and their relationship with work is completely screwed up, but celebrated. Right. But it's it's I have this obsession with how many workplace shows there are on TV, which I'm convinced are about the fact that TV is so frequently written in writers' rooms. So TV creators keep creating shows that are either in this case a direct portrayal of a writer's room, or in the case of like CSI, a metaphorical, you know, right. like like there's a lot of shows that have a crazy boss and a bunch of eccentric people that they're oh, yeah. trying to get to work together. Those are all shows about writer's rooms. I'm back to... Uh, um, oh, yeah. We yeah. can talk about Mad Men and Breaking Bad, I think are both just sort of metaphors for the writing life. This is, this creators, is... they're fighting with the, you know, the people who work with them, mm -hmm. they have very strong, very clear visions like showrunners have, and they're very dictatorial. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's they... true on like, shows that are a little off the... Like, I, I, like on, on sitcoms, there's a whole stream of shows that are all meta shows about TV, you know, Dick Van Dyke and going back to um, your show of shows. Right. Um, being then replicated on Dick Van Dyke and sort of like you get traumatized in a writer's room and then you create a narrative about a gang that works together and they, yeah. Right, completely. Um, so uh, for anybody that doesn't follow Emily on Twitter, you're making a mistake. She's a great follow on Twitter. Um, but you recently tweeted something. <laughs> <laughs> this is like my worst nightmare. I'm on a panel. No. Recently, it's like this is where it all goes off the edge. Anyway, what did I tweet? I'm very curious how sort of what the decision process is in this. If there is one, you tweeted that you didn't like a few shows. Um, yeah. You just watched Maniac. You didn't like it. You watched uh, Forever on Amazon, well, which I loved. I, many many people love. But I wanted like to love Forever. Forever was made by a bunch of people whose work I really like. Right. Um, I had reviewed those shows though. Okay. So, so it wasn't like I, I wasn't I wasn't I do do I do do what you're asking about which is I occasionally 
tweet an opinion that is not actually uh, tethered to a review that I wrote. In the case of that, I was trying to get people to recommend shows to me that I would like better than those shows. Because I, I, I because, no, because I was frustrated. I didn't want to write a, a, a series of sort of, you know, not, they're not full on pans, but like uh, the maniac one was, but like the mixed reviews of shows that I found disappointing. I, I don't, that's not to me an enjoyable thing to do. I mean, frankly, I would rather have a show that I actively disliked, but I thought was very powerful and interesting and worth talking about. Right. So I tweeted that because I wanted people not to recommend forever. Wow. I, like I, I tweeted it because I tweeted like a summary of a few shows and I was saying, find me something off the beaten track. I was using Twitter the way that I often do as kind of a global fishing expedition for people to mention. Right. So, and it's been very effective. Like, Is that right? Did, did anybody come in with a recommendation that you love? Well, actually, I ended up then going to two other television critics. And, you know, because we all have to work together a little bit because there are so many screeners that... Um, like uh, I reviewed you, which is on Lifetime, which I really like, and I would never have found I would never have found you <laughs> if um, if uh, if so, uh, like I g chat with other critics and say what screeners have you looked at that seems good because it's it's a way of it, there there is a level at which it's not about mimicking other people's opinions no. it's it's sort of about group. Um, like a mind, uh, like a hive minding huh. what's promising. Do you ever and, check in with someone and, and say, and, like, you know, somebody recommended Maniac to me and I watched Maniac and I didn't like it. So it's not as right. though people are just repeating each other's opinions, but it's useful, it's useful to find out what's, right. what's out there. Because like, you know, if you watch something that people are buzzing about and you hated it, you might g-chat some critic that you like and say, did you watch this? Am I missing something? I, uh, that's not, it's, it's not exactly that. I mean, occasionally, I mean, I'm friendly with Alan Seppenwall and he and I G-chat like um, uh, Statler and Waldorf and like we really disagree about a lot of things. There are other shows we agree on. So we do occasionally talk like that, but it's, I, I, I feel like people actually, yeah, once in a while, if you're really baffled by people's responses to things, you might just ask a friend, Right. What did you think of this? But I, I do find that helpful just because there are so many shows that shows get lost. And if some, I, I, have, I have one friend who likes, she watches a lot of things that are on like Lifetime and the CW that I've missed. And, like, and she watches a lot more reality than I do. So I actually find her a very reliable person to go to and say, what am I missing? Because I, I particularly want to find things that are not on the five channels that I just happen to be watching yeah, all the time. Yeah, no, completely. Yeah. And, and Netflix is impossible because it's like a, you know, universe of shows. Right. So. And sorry, so how many... I'm just sitting, I'm spending this whole panel just complaining about how much TV there is. It's so boring. <laughs> anyway. But, I mean, a lot of people complain about that these days. It's a great thing, though, that TV is now niche, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of for a completist. You know, I, I spent years praising TV having tiny audiences because I felt like it vastly improved TV not to have to appeal to everyone. Right. People could do experimental things, take risks. But at this point, it's actually gone past the point where there are great niche things that I can point to and things like, you know, Fleabag and, yeah. uh, you know, like I, trying to, I'm trying to think of what little cool thing. Um, clause, which I like, um, yeah. but um, 
high maintenance, you know, which is a tiny show on like. But Lovesick on Netflix. You watched that I, one. I I, I watched Love Lovesick show. when it was called Squirtle yeah, Recall. Yeah, me too. And you couldn't recommend it <laughs> to your I friends. I you reviewed it when it was. This is, my, this is my one. Like I was cool when country wasn't cool. I, I reviewed it when yeah. it was called Squirtle Recall. Oh, you did. And I did it because my wonderful friend who watches shows like that recommended it's it to fantastic. me, and it is yeah. a lovely show. But um, but I do think that the problem is that uh, there's. I mean, this isn't. This, this, it isn't a problem insofar as it's obviously good for there to be many different kinds of television shows, but it does become harder to draw attention to any particular show right. as, as the crowd kind of moves from one thing to another. I mean, people do want something shared to talk about. So, right. And I have to say, there's been this year has been a weirdly disappointing year for TV. There haven't been as many things that I've watched this year that have been forever. the way that I was. I know I mean, we could already, we could have a whole conversation about forever. Yeah. I, uh, forever had some charming elements. It had one charming element. Wow. It was okay. Maya Rudolph, who's wonderful. She was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'll ask one more question, and I would love to open it up to you guys. Um, the New York Times writer um, James Poniewozik was hired as a TV critic, but now you know this presidency has essentially turned him into a pundit. Has, that is not true. James not writes true. about TV all the time. He writes about TV a lot, but he also writes about it in the context of politics so much to the point that he's really writing. He's written a book about Trump now. Right. Do I know. you feel like having a TV president has changed TV criticism? Yeah. Well, it's a, the least. This is like the tiniest issue of having Trump as president. Right. It's like how has it affected TV criticism? But. That is actually the most important thing. <laughs> no, um, I, I would. I, I have to say, I read James's reviews consistently. I think he's one of the absolute best yes. critics. And he, he, uh, while there are things that you unavoidably write about Trump when you write about like Roseanne, um, you know, and I wrote a review of Roseanne that touched on the relationship with Trump. But, um, but James does. I mean, he reviews other TV shows. He just happens to be one of the best people at writing about Trump on TV. I can't say why I haven't done that. I wrote one essay that I have, I, I don't think it's a bad essay, I think it's okay, but it, I wrote it about Trump and the, and, um, and the Apprentice, and in order to do it, I watched most of The Apprentice, um, wow. which is not available to people, by the way, so I had to use magical powers to access it. It's not available um, for political reasons, or? It's not available for, I assume Mark Burnett-based reasons. Right. Like it's not available. You can you can go online and you can get the first season on DVD, but you cannot watch the other seasons, the seven seasons of Fat and the seven seasons of Lean or whatever they have, because there's like The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice. So when I, I I did write that, but the the piece that I really wrote that was about Trump, I wrote about jokes and the election, and I'm happy with that piece, but it wasn't. It, it, it put together a bunch of different TV shows and how they dealt with politics and Trump's presence within the shows. But I don't think people want, I don't know. But I have not written as much directly about Trump as James has. He writes for a newspaper, though. It's a little bit different. Like, it would be weird to use my column, which comes out in a different schedule and everything. Right. I mean, I'm trying to think in, I mean, it, it's it's hard to write about in a way that doesn't feel poisonous or simple-minded, you know. Um, but uh, but I mean, look, if you read my column on the original Roseanne, uh, I mean that's a political column. Yeah. I definitely write about politics. I mean, I wrote about I wrote about Sam B. Like yeah. you, you, that's a that's right. a show about Certainly politics. Certainly, if you're writing it all about news or mm -hmm. late TV or anything like that. Yeah, and I wrote a very funny about. column about Fox, but it was before. I guess it was before Trump won. Right. Um, so 
you know, anything that was written in the time before. Right. <laughs> and now has a very different feel. Um, okay, so I want to open it up, um, and I'm going to have the annoying habit of repeating the question. Yes? I'll repeat it. Can I okay, go for it. Yeah, so she was, she was asking me about the, what was the first thing? Did you say the, um, the social politics? At first I thought you said the sexual politics. So, um, the social politics of, of criticism, and I had said that I was uncomfortable with, um, with writing about poetry. Was there other stuff that I was hesitant to review because of my identity or who I am, I assume what you mean, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm much older and meaner than when I was reviewing poetry, and so I no longer have that. I think I was feeling, I mean, I, I, there are reasons why I didn't want to do it, but I'm a slightly different person. That was a long time ago. Um, but, but, you know, this has particularly been an issue for me this year a bit, and actually, I, at one point, Wesley Morris wrote a really wonderful essay that you all should read that was in the New York Times that was about something a little bit different. It was about, um, it was about the question of whether criticism, um, the notion of criticism as a moral force or the idea of people criticizing television shows through a moral lens rather than an aesthetic lens. And writing about whether shows had sufficient representation or were healthy enough or better for the culture and stuff like that. And Wesley, Wesley, was, Wesley who himself is black, and he was writing about primarily, like uh, the, the lead to the piece was about how um, a friend at brunch had told him that he shouldn't write negative things about Insecure, or he should like Insecure, the show on HBO, because it was that woman's story, black women's stories aren't told that often on television, and it wasn't really his place not to like it, essentially. If, I'm not sure if I'm representing the lead of this correctly, but it's, that's essentially what his piece was wrestling with, was, was this idea of whether people were, you know, and some people took issue with the essay. I thought it was great. But actually, I was talking about it on Twitter, and I said, and this is the only show I can think of where, where this is true. But I had mixed feelings about Insecure, and I thought about writing about it this year, and honestly, I thought to myself, I don't think there's a real desire to read a white woman's ambivalent feelings about Insecure right now in the third season. Like, I, I literally, you know, I have to choose which things to criticize. And frankly, I have mixed feelings about that decision. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's reasonable and pragmatically accurate. <laughs> but it wasn't really, I mean, it sounds a little chicken-hearted. Like, I don't want to be criticized for writing. But I was also like, what is my is my perspective on this valuable in this conversation right now? Especially because it was, I don't have extremely strong feelings about the show. I more like some things and don't like other things. I'm interested, I've watched it all. I'm interested in Molly's story and I, I think she's a great actress, but I found the flow of the show frustrating and I was thinking of it in the context of other shows like that that are like friendship shows in cities. So I had a few thoughts, but they weren't very, Connected, but I will say I do feel like one of the things was that I was thinking, it's a it's a charged show for people as far as representation, and I, I I I sort of decided not to anyway. So that's the only example that I can think of where, but it, but most of the time I don't really care. Like I I sort of feel like I am who I am. I have my opinions, and people will like or dislike them, and. In it, what's more important than my opinions is just having a broad range of people criticizing things 
so that we can have rich conversations. One of the best periods of my life was after I panned the first season of True Detective. And at one point, somebody was saying to me, I mean, it wasn't a great period because I was constantly attacked and getting a lot of trollish, <laughs> nasty mail and like seven page handwritten letters from prison, literally, like, um, because people were big fans of that show. And there were certain shows, certain kinds of anti-hero shows that if you wrote negative reviews of them, you got very strong responses from their fans. Um, but one of the things was there were enough, I had written sort of a feminist critique of the show, but I knew several female critics who really liked the show. So the main debates I was having were all with female critics. So to me, that was just a, it was a, it was a good example of how, uh, like a more varied and diverse critical body enables people to disagree and not just have to represent who they are so that one person doesn't have to be like just a set of labels. Like ideally, the criticism that you write should be self-aware of where you come from and your position, but at the same time, should be, you know, like personal and determined by a whole set of different experiences and values and ideas. I don't know whether I said that very, Clearly, but like, because I, I think it's a very complicated question. Is that what you were asking? Because I want to make sure I understand. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What's the perfect sort of, um, or what's your perfect sort of outcome of a review? Is it getting people talking and debating the show, debating the review? You're hoping to just get a conversation started? It really depends on the review. Like, uh, I mean, a lot of the time, I just want to feel good about the review uh, personally, like having nothing to do with the people reading it. Like, I want to feel like. I contributed something original to the conversation that is well-written, that it is honest, um, maybe that it's witty, um, or that it's moving in some way, like, and that it did, it served the art, even if I was writing something negative about it, that I was writing something that actually uh, treated it with some kind of, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe this, like that, you know, that took it as it was, like, and, and, and really wrestled with it. And then occasionally made fun of it because sometimes things, that's a valuable and fun thing to do as well. So it's not like, you know, coming to it with gravitas, treating it as art. I'm just saying a piece of criticism that did its work well. And then ideally, I mean, sometimes I do want to draw attention to something that I think is really, like, I wrote about, um, there's this amazing movie, The Tale, that came out earlier this year. I was very frustrated that people weren't seeing it, and it was on HBO, I think. And I mean, it was hard to write about because it's about a woman remembering being sexually abused as a child, and it's this very interesting, beautifully filmed experimental movie where there's this girl playing herself as a younger self. I think people were hesitant to see it because it seemed so wrenching, but it's not only a very amazingly made and thought through movie, but it related to a TV show that she did earlier that I, that I had seen and that almost nobody had seen that I thought was interesting. And it had obvious relevance to the current conversation about the Me Too movement and stuff like that. But I didn't want to just stick it in a particular political place. I wanted to be able to bring it to life for people. So that's a particularly satisfying thing, is to be able to bring to life a piece of art for people that I want I do want people to Which watch. Which we need right now because yeah. there's so much out there you know. that it's hard to know what the good stuff is. Yeah, I mean, I think I, that is my favorite kind of thing. But sometimes, but sometimes, honestly, it's good if there's just an interesting show that people are having a conversation about, and I can provide a, like a good idea, like an interesting idea, like a new lens, a new way to see it. It's not that people have to agree with me about it, but if I can do something original, then I think that that's good. Well. 
I'm curious, are there people in the audience who want to go into the field of criticism? Yeah. Very oh. wise. <laughs> <laughs> Almost no hands were raised. <laughs> yeah, we've got some, a lot of okay. nodding over here. Um, so if you guys, any questions about sort of the current state of the profession, maybe? Right. It's like I have this sort of slightly rambly story. I I graduated from college. I I mean I'm you know in my 50s. So like it was sometimes people ask me, did you want to become a TV critic in college? And I'm like, it was the late 80s. <laughs> it really wasn't a thing I was thinking about. And TV was different, very different. Um, but I didn't actually get into journalism until I was around 30. So I didn't have a path that went through journalism. I didn't have a desire to become a critic per se. But I went to graduate school um, in my late 20s. I got a master's in poetry and I was in the doctoral literature program. And I um, was working for a small women's vegetarian health magazine, rewriting everybody's stuff. And I was also writing pieces for a magazine called Lingua Franca that was a wonderful magazine that doesn't exist anymore. It was a smart, small magazine about um, academia. It was not an academic journal. It was a gossipy magazine about what academics do, which is much better than an academic journal. And there were a lot of really smart, great people who worked there. So basically, and I was teaching, so I had too many jobs. Um, and uh, then I fortuitously uh, uh, landed for a week from a mild infection in a hospital that allowed me to drop out of graduate school. So my whole career is really due to the fact that I got sick during finals and then didn't pursue an academic career, which is very lucky for me because as far as I'm concerned, I'm a, um, I, I'm a dilettante with a short attention span and was not well suited for academia. But at that point, I was doing a lot of uh, journalistic things, and I had a whole series of jobs that I can tell you. I wrote for Nerve, I wrote for Slate, I wrote for the New York Times, I wrote, you know, I did a lot of different kinds of journalism. And then I was offered this great job. Um, I thought I'd done a lot of uh, work as a, um, as a freelance writer and had written profiles and reported pieces, and Adam Moss took over New York Magazine, and he brought me in for an interview, and he hired me as the um, editor of the culture section. So then I did the most important thing that I've ever done, which is I created the approval matrix, which I'm very <laughs> proud of, so I have to mention it everywhere. It's a charticle that goes from highbrow to lowbrow and brilliant to despicable. It's great. So I, I edited that section for a couple of years, and then um, I edited John Leonard, who was the wonderful television critic there. And during the time that I was working there, I was more and more interested in TV, although I would trace my interest in TV to a specific night in 1997 when I saw the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called The Pack, which is not even a great episode, but like it's like it, that that is the reason that I'm a TV critic. Wait, you gotta tell us about that episode. That wasn't the silent episode? What? Oh, well, no, I didn't pick like the episode everyone <laughs> thinks is the best episode of Buffy. No, I just happened to watch- It's a random episode? It's the hyena episode. <laughs> the episode where all of the, all of the mean kids turn into hyenas. Um, but anyway, I was getting more interested in TV and then John, who was old and ill, he died. And at that point, I was working at New York and I said to Adam, I would like to write TV criticism. And he said, are you crazy? Because going into arts criticism is not actually the greatest idea for a career path for anybody who's about to ask me for advice. Um, but, uh, and then, and that's what I've been doing since then. Like, I actually really feel like this is a wonderful dream job. Like, I'm very passionate about TV and I've been doing this for years. and. I'm currently feeling very overwhelmed by the changes in TV, but 
I do feel really grateful for it. But that's that's a short. I mean, that's not. I have. Like, I, I'd like to offer people like a really clear resume thing, but it's 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 messier than that. Um, all right. Thank you very much. Thank you.